welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Well, so let's just launch into it. Like, what do you, what, when you talk about driven people, what do you mean? So the context of being driven. So I um, wrote Driven over the last three years, four years. It's been a work in progress over the last 30, just my life experience. Amazing time to be a psychologist and in this field. Um, I myself am driven. And so what that means for me, and I can, I'll just speak from my own personal experience, but I started by really blowing my life up at about the age of 15, 14, 15, 16, dropped out of high school, was just unbelievably angry at my family system and had this profound awareness that I was seeing something people didn't see. Like, why can't you people see how crazy this is, how hurtful this is, how, and so it, it, it just baffled me and cocaine, alcohol, drugs kind of were my solution for all of that kind of chronic discontent and pain I was feeling living in a car for about six months, figured out that that really sucked and had a woman come and bang on the back window one morning, six 30 in the morning. And you know, this mirroring moment, I saw the reflection of myself for the first real time where she was looking at me and I saw her through her eyes. I saw me through her eyes and it was just like, Whoa, that is not me. This is not the life that I've been possible, capable of, um, which that was 1986. So in that intervening, you know, 30 years, 32 years, went back to school almost immediately, started working in a drug rehab and became pretty clear that, you know, I'm put on this planet to be a teacher and understanding what the hell, why am I so different? And getting into AA for a while, getting into, you know, just really seeing both adolescent, young adult, adult, this pattern of behavior that was so clear in the, you know, the addictive personality. What's the pattern that you saw? Great. So in 1991, the Time magazine came out with a cover story about how they found the alcoholism gene, the genes for alcoholism. Oh my God, we found it. Hooray, that fixes everything, right? Exactly. We found the cause. Just push um, that button the other direction and all will be fine. And yeah, that that's the, but that began my understanding that there might be something nature, you know, genetic going on versus nurture. And, you know, just impassioned me with this, this drive to really understand, which is part of the pattern of being driven is that we have this, unbelievable need to understand the big picture and you know because we kind of get the bigger picture than most other people in the on the world and we use our intuition it's really kind of the function of it that we see something going on here but we can't quite explain how we know it 91 that came out i started usc i went to us i finally got into sc undergrad and 
between 91 and 2018, they crack the human genome and understand very clearly that yes, there are some genetic differences in people that are driven, addictive personality, whatever you want to call it. It's related to ADD, ADHD. And so you see this constellation of behaviors. And you know, But what's really going on underneath? 2001 was the first real book on it. And then in 2011, 2012, okay, Thomas Hartman came up with the hunter-farmer theory for explaining why 10% of the population is really different. And those differences, farmers are farmers, and they're wired for a world. And he built it because his kids got ADD and was getting kicked out of school. There must be an evolutionary explanation. And if you think about what a farmer is, and you know, agricultural revolution over the last 4,000 years, the world has become an incredibly safe, boring place. Literally, people have adapted to sitting around and watching things grow. And they are wired for a W-2 job. I mean, they're wired for assembly line work. Routine, risk avoidance. What they did last year is going to work this year, so don't change anything. And if you make a change, keep it really small. 3% growth is just fine. And so the farmers were, you know, and I read his book and just went, whoa, I am not that. And then he describes the hunters, and this is that constellation of kind of what is a driven, is we just have chronic discontent. We always feel like there's something potentially missing or wrong or can be better in our world. So chronic discontent. See, see, and that is the reward deficiency. Okay. Yeah. Reward deficiency syndrome was the first when they really got into understanding these genetics. There's two dopamine receptors in the brain that are primarily affected in this constellation of personality traits. But it, it's the first is the dopamine receptor number two, and that's the boredom gene. And so most of the population does not experience boredom as easily as about five or 8% of us that have these genetics. That led into a whole explanation of what is boredom. So boredom is, you know, need for novelty in the moment. We look around and I'm feeling this, you know, while I'm sitting here trying to watch it you know, two hour show with my wife, 45 minutes in, I need a bag of chips, need to get up, need to, let me go do the dishes. Because it, it, it's this internal sensation that becomes intolerable if we let it. The more interesting one is the dopamine receptor number two or four, which is the FOMO gene, as I call it, where it, it's as a hunter, we are wired to feel like there's always going to be more woolly mammoths over the next hill. The grass is always greener over the next. And, you know, if farmers had that, they would be leaving their crops that take nine months to grow. If hunters didn't have that, we would be killing everything in our immediate vicinity, deplete the game. And so we're always feeling, you know, like grass is greener over there. So our need for future novelty, our need for this, this horizoning, we're always running towards the horizon, shiny object syndrome. So what's the relationship between drivenness and entrepreneurship? We are, I used to call it when I first doing this 15 years ago, was the entrepreneurial mind. And that biggest difference that you'll see when you put us in functional MRIs is that farmers, 90% of the population, have left prefrontal dominance, which means that they have great executive functions. They can, they see the world in this really nice sequential way. and 
hunters or driven people have occipital dominance, or we use the back of our heads rather than the front of our heads. And so we're using our eyesight to make sense of the world. So just a hunter, that makes sense. A byproduct of that is something they call hypofrontality, which is the defining feature of ADD, ADHD, whatever. But what we do is multi-think. It's not that our frontal lobes aren't working. It's just they're lit up and all. They're not linear. They're not linear. So rather than seeing the world this way, we see the world this way. We see the whole potential. Oh, you know, this new business venture. I got the greatest idea in the world. How do the how do I know? Because I can feel it. I can feel that bigger picture. Where we try to explain that to a, a farmer, they look at us like we have two heads. And like, what are you talking about? You're being tangential and you're not making sense of how all these thoughts are connected. What are you doing? But that's the way we are in the world. So if someone's listening to this and they're wondering, if they're on the fence about whether they're driven or not in this conceptualization or like, how would you know? Like, what would you feel? What would that spark be within you where you would recognize? It, it's in... <laughs> And I'm coming up with more and more measures for this, actually trying to do a real scientific measure of are you driven, short of getting in a functional MRI, but that you've always suspected and felt like, you know, you weren't reaching your potential. Another way of saying that is it always felt like you weren't good enough. I'd always felt like, you know, that I'm not doing everything I know I can do. How do you distinguish that, that internal nature from an external world that's often telling you, sit down, sit still, do this, do that. You're not who you're supposed to be. You know what I mean? The internal versus the external. And that goes into my doctoral research and really it, it's- <laughs> That's why I'm asking you, you know the answer. Self-fulfilling prophecy, self-sabotage, and this wonderful thing of shame. I mean, we, you know, shame is what the core of this is. Feeling like there's something missing or wrong with me. So human beings, when they have feelings in their body, you know, why do we have feelings? Very simply, something out there in the real world may be important to me. So I have some central nervous system kind of reaction to it. Human beings, like all animals, we're just a bunch of animals, hate helplessness. We don't do helpless. And so what sensations in our body that are unexplained, what we do is either we blame, we look for the cause out there, and if we can't successfully do that, we shame, we internally blame when we create this narrative about what I am and or who I am in this world. And that's called your sense of self. And that sense of self is, you know, the split, in Carl Jung's words, you know, between our inner world and the outer world. There's a discrepancy. And that discrepancy is really the core problem of what it is to be driven. Because I can look at the outer world you know, I can get a 99 on a spelling test and reward deficiency. My dopamine doesn't get charged because I kick butt. I still feel like and then look for the reason that I'm feeling like it's not enough. And I focus on the one I missed. So we can get into perfectionism and it's the core of the imposter syndrome. You know, I thought I'd get an education. So I wound up with two PhDs, which is totally cuckoo. But that, you know, walking out of my dissertation defenses simultaneously, you know, the, the monkey mind, my narrative in my head said, ha ha, they bought it. 
because my internal world told me, you know, I, I can remember every corner I cut. I can remember every little thing that I didn't do perfect. I can remember all of those things and I make an identity out of it. Like they don't know the real me. And I mean, as a, as a mental health professional, how much do you help that stay intact? Because it is the nature of the beast. It is the nature of the animal in front of you. Oh, this is a great, interesting word there. So what is, and I can start to get into philosophy if you like, but what is our, our self-nature versus our true nature? Okay. And that ability to actually see, and I create a logical awareness and logical container to actually contain the impulsive natures of our body and you know, becoming very clearly aware that when I have an impulse to either approach or avoid, you know, fight, flight, there's a gap before it hits the new brain, neocortex, before I make a narrative. So when, when you have a narrative of, they bought it, mm-hmm. is that a helpful narrative or not? It gets you living in a car. <laughs> so. <laughs> so maybe not. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, you know, it's the old, there's a, when you finally get sick and tired of yourself, and truly feel the suffering of the self. And the only problem you truly have is yourself. And this is why I choose to work only with driven people because I, you know, the, the short story is we're wired for suffering. We are wired for chronic discontent. We're wired to get onto the master's path of healing. And, you know, the farmers in my world, and I get farmers in my office on occasion by accident, they don't relate. They settle for 3% growth. You know, as a driven person, I'm unemployable, which means that I have to be running my own show because I'm the only one who really gets the big picture that I'm seeing. And I do a lot of work with entrepreneurial teams and, and, you know, we're prone to live in fantasy. We're prone to live in our own narratives as a human species. But I give a biological understanding of why it's there. And I shift this very simple understanding into a physical experience through some of the tools and techniques that I've developed that there is no self. There isn't. It is a, it's a biological freakdom of our own consciousness. And you know, other animals don't have this. We're the only ones that truly have consciousness. We know that we know that we know. And you know that narrative that we create by default, which most farmers just live happily in and never really challenge it, because we're driven, we are wired to challenge it. And eventually we will crash and burn. <laughs> we just do. You know, if you know, that's part of coming in my doctoral research about self-sabotage is that, you know, if the outer world is actually too good for our central nervous system to handle, we get out of our zone of tolerance, it's called in biological terms. But we, you know, if you win the lottery, 95% plus of people that win the lottery Within five years, it is the worst thing ever to happen to their lives because their bodies can't handle that much safety. You know, and the epigenetics of, you know, we're wired as driven people for a scarier world. We're waiting for the next ice age. We're waiting for, you know, the impending doom of the circumstance to change. The agricultural system that we've set up is going to crash one day. And the entrepreneurs and the drivens will figure it out. 
kind of exciting. <laughs> so <laughs> We've been waiting for a good apocalypse. Exactly. Farmers are waiting, you know, farmers are terrified of that and trying to come up with a way to keep their little, you know, societies together where we just don't feel like we fit into it. We get the joke. So when a driven person is in your office, what are you, what are you trying to do with them? What are you working on with them? You, you talked about sort of shifting into the body. Yep. And so it's, I first give a very simple description of what it means to be driven. And for the first time, for many of my driven, so, you know, I talk about this stuff too, or, you know, read my book, there's a name, there's a label that explains their experience outside of the self for the first time. You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. You're supposed to be this way, feeling the way you feel. And, you know, but all of the farmers wrote the big book of crazy, wrote the DSM. And we are sprinkled throughout that. 80% of the people in prison are there because of some impulsive driven nature. ADD, ADHD, addiction, whatever. And so we scare the crap out of farmers. And I have plenty of clients that have gone through four or five farmer therapists going, no, she just wanted me to get on meds. And it's for the first time in their lives, many of them feel understood. And that's the cure for shame, is that I'm not broken. I'm not, but we are in the eyes of farmers. Walk into my office and it's like, dude, there's nothing wrong with you. And once they get that, and then we can start exploring, you know, the, how the sense of self operates and how the sense, sense of self works. And we create a logical understanding for that. And what is emotion and, and how we naturally create a who is in our world, the killing of self, whether it's through, you know, Christianity or through Buddhism or whatever, that real understanding of what it means to kill oneself the bodhisattva or the you know, taking yourself to the cross, that ability to actually experience no self, freedom from self. It's called hyperfocus. And driven people are naturally wired for this state of hyperfocus. And they, oh yeah, no, I get that. When you're downhill skiing, there is no self. If you're worried about the tree, you're going to hit the tree, right? Which is in the present. There is no self in the present. And that's a fact. And, you know, where is safety in this world? And for all my truly D4 people, you know, running at the horizon, trying to create a safer world, it it makes you cuckoo. Because safety only exists in the present. Right now, I'm safe. Two seconds, five seconds from now, meteorite's going to come kill us all, and there's nothing we can do about it. But right now, I am safe. So how does that that profound presence, the lack of self, work with an entrepreneur who's running business, who has plans to make, who has employees to pay, who's got shit to do. Like, can you sort of transmorph? Like, can you go back and forth? What? That's the great, man, that's like a primed question. So the Buddha had his great enlightenment and had this great profound awareness that there is no self in the present and draws some interesting diagrams around it. And, you know, story goes, God tapped him on the shoulder because his plan was to say, screw it, I'm not going back into that wackadoodle farmer world where everyone's judging me. I'm going to stay. And God said, no, 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 you got to go teach. And so he goes, oh, man, how am I going to teach this? So he goes walking up to the first guy 
that he finds some old man walking on the trail and he starts drawing pictures and talking and doing all the stuff I do. And the guy looks at him like he has two heads and just like, you're nuts. Good luck with all that. Then he walks up to the six guys that he's been sitting with for the last seven years. They look at him and goes, whoa, you look different. You look okay. And he goes, yeah, I've discovered it. Ah, what have you discovered? That we're always coming and going. And then he shut up. <laughs> because this, this understanding that we're always coming and going from our inner world to outer world, we're always coming from fear into love and love into fear. And that ability to see how we're moving through that in a fluid state and not fighting to get back. Because the fight to get back, believing there's something wrong, is suffering. And, you know, I say it every day. If you don't pay your mortgage, they take your shit away. And, you know, as driven people, balance is crap. You can never have balance. That's, that's irrelevant. Part of the discussion. Knowing you're out of balance is the point. And that friends, family, fitness, finance, fun, faith, you know, as driven people, we love to get hyper-focused in one category. I'm going to start exercising. A month later, I'm signing up for Ironmans. I mean, it's just, it, it's our nature to actually, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to master it. But what happens to the rest of your life is that, you know, you get out of balance. Your families feel abandoned. You did, we get addicted to anything that actually pulls us into that presenting you know, flow state and chase it to the end, get really good at it, master it, get bored, do something else. But this ability to actually step back, to go away from the present and look at the big picture and start to set up a system or a process that allows us to have more balance. And, you know, it's a nice 10 seconds a year is my joke that I always say when I have balance and it's not in a row. Two seconds here, three seconds. It's sort of a flip-flopping back and forth. I mean, it's it's not elegant. No. <laughs> go hard in one direction, quick turn, pivot, go another direction. And you just sort of hope that all the directions are sort of mostly covered. Right. So I get all my clients journaling, accountability practices, bullshit, you know, detection, reality testing. Yeah. What I do is that no more excuses, no more narrative that, you know, I'm out of balance with exercise right now. And I am you know, because I'm developing a new measure and I'm working this and I'm at, you know, I'm my family life and my kids and did, 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 but I know it. But if I give those things up and I hyper-focus on exercise, I'm going to, you know, so I gently, this is the hardest thing as a driven person I've ever learned and taught gentleness with myself and making micro commitments that I'm just going to go exercise three times this week for 20 minutes give something else up in my work or my, you know, and explain it to my wife and my family that if I don't do this, eventually I will become a less good father and a, you know, a jerk. And so all of them become one thing. All of them become this, you know, mastery process where there is no finish line. What I teach in my book over and over and over, better has no finish line. And seeing that I am doing better in my balance. Balance isn't the goal. Doing better in balance is the goal. It's a real total way of business. It's a different way of being in the world. Yeah, which is less categorical and linear and more fluid. Which is the way our brains work. Yeah. 
So your next book is about driven women, <laughs> yeah. right? Are you still going to write that book? You told me about yeah, it. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm collecting driven women. And it's, <laughs> yeah, I know my nine-year-old daughter is driven. She is, she is driven. At four and a half, and she was the first one to the top of the 12-foot rope in gymnastics class. I mean, she, and I did it. How does this look different for men and women? Or does it? Why write it? Why write a special book about driven women? So this is this is my passion. I am a man, and you know the greatest thing Freud ever said was, you know, on his deathbed after eighty-five years of trying to understand women, you're ununderstandable. And I think that's really we, we know that. We just are waiting for y'all to figure that out. <laughs> and I don't try to understand. I seek to understand. I, I really am curious in looking at you know, you guys are different. You have a different brain. You have a different wiring system. You're a different species. In the process over the last year or two of really doing this, the admiration I have for women and understanding how, I mean, you, I'm just in awe. You know, men, we are stupid, simple creatures. We are Labradors compared to women. Well, I feel like there's a little more space for drivenness in men, right? Like there's a, we have a framework. We have a cultural understanding of a male hunter. We have some exceptional historical figures that are female hunters, but they're sort of looked at with sort of awe and caution. We're less comfortable with driven women sort of walking among us. Oh, tremendously. This, this, the, the compassion I have for driven women is off the charts because not only do you have a genetic biological drive, you have a society that that scares. And then you have a within women group culture Mm -hmm. of, you know, you want to be meek and mild. You don't want to be the bitch that's running the business. Well, some of us do want to be, but we just still want to have friends to have wine with. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) But how do you have balance as a woman in a woman's world, in a woman's farmer world? You know, my wife's an electrical engineer and was a VP at Qualcomm and just admirable. Like I admire her and she's poking her pencils in the eyes with a nine and 11 year old at home. And all the farming women looking at her going, are you, you know. You have everything you want. A beautiful family. Look at my new purse and my new shoes. You know, and they have, it, it's, yeah, exactly. And so that inner, but feeling like you're different and knowing you're different as a driven woman. And you, you start to own your differences and empowering power is, and I, you know, through working with women, I really have been understanding power from a central nervous system perspective. Something out there is causing my central nervous system to dysregulate to a point where it changes my behavior. I'm giving my power up to whatever my perception is. But that ability to actually own your power and not give up your behavior to all the fourth grade girls, their moms are crazy. Okay. Especially if they're living through their daughter's experience. And oh my God, somebody hurt my little princess. And they, I mean, just, it's like, are you kidding me? And as a man, I would be, I'd be cutting myself trying to live in that. I can't, I bet, no, my wife seems to navigate it. But the understanding about power and as a driven woman that can really see the big picture, that gets the joke. Oh, she's just a farmer. She's trying to shame me back into the herd. And I see what she's doing. And if it doesn't trigger my deeper, there's something wrong with me, shame, because you're driven, and that reward deficiency, 
and you don't try to climb their ladder and try to you know rise to their pedestal and you write you create your own pedestal and you can have it all you can have a husband and a couple of kids and a five million dollar business and a it's a tricky balancing act you'll never be in balance but knowing that you're trying and setting up the nannies or whatever you have to do to get everybody's needs met which is why i'm in awe of women men we're, we're selfish we just that where women are trying to do that and that is awesome but you don't have to sacrifice your drivenness or career for a family you can have both you know, but as a driven woman, it, it's a lot more work than a driven man because you got so much society crap and you all are mean to each other. Women, it's like, it's like you all, men, we hurt each other's feelings and, you know, we fist fight with each other. 15 minutes later, we're good. Every driven woman, uh, no, driven women, it, it's, you know, as I'm interviewing all, you know, it's, um, I mean, you guys can remember in fourth grade, the name of the that was such a, you know. Andrea Thorpe. There it is. <laughs> but that, as long as you can understand that that's not shameful, it is hurtful, but don't make an identity out of that hurt. So in a lot, I have a lot of conversations in entrepreneurial circles about loneliness, isolation, which seems to be a piece of the driven experience. How important is finding a little driven tribe of hunters or is it part of the nature of what it means to be driven, to be to some extent outside of the social group? So you, you describe it well, brings to mind a client, 78 years old and 20 minutes into our discussion, he starts crying. It's the first time in his world he's ever felt understood and the description that I give about, you know, hunters versus farmers, farmers, we have a couple different wiring systems and I'll save you all the neurobiology, but farmers, because they're designed to live in a social, social structure to successfully be in a farm over the last 4,000 years, cities have become really big. And so the identity of a farmer is very simple, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, and they seem to be comfortable in that. Part of that is that they're Dorsal vagal nerve is dominant, which means that they're wired much more like gazelles. And what happens when a cheetah runs into a herd of gazelles? They scatter. Screw you and you're on your own. Good luck. <laughs> and that, that as a driven person that is so prone to be in stupidly loyal to others, often to the wrong people. You know, if you're loyal to a gazelle, when, when things get hard which our risk tolerance is off the charts, they, they'll bail. And so lots of my clients, lots of the drivens, you know, have given up on people. No one's got my back, which feeds into shame and loneliness and truly takes to the depths of hell. But once you understand that, what does it take to really be a hunter? It talks about this other wiring. It's a heart wiring. It's a vagal nerve, ventral vagal nerve in particular. This is the wolf pack wiring. What happens when a bear attacks one of the wolves? All the other wolves jump in. Yep, I got your back. There's nothing too scary for me to go through for you. And so that, uh, but that ability to actually discern who's really willing to be heart-centered or go with their heart, if you're driven, it's, it's, that's what I always laugh from stage, that, you know, it's in our wiring, it's in our natures, because we are wired to go 
take little tiny sticks at giant woolly mammoths and, you know, poke them. <laughs> it's like, if we don't have everybody else there. We're screwed. But that deeper ability to start to discern and then create that true wolf pack is essential. And I, I do that when I'm doing early entrepreneurial ventures, you know, where you get four or five guys together and you get the truth. They're all driven. They're all nutcases just working 70 hours a week. But then as they transition from this hunter kind of culture and they start to bring farmers in because we can't run big companies, we lose it. <laughs> they move too slow. But eventually, if you ever want to exit, you've got to create a farm. But we scare the crap out of farmers and they'll bail on us. So that transition point from idea to real viable product and they're making money into that farmer kind of management model. You have to manage farmers differently. You have to understand their motives. Yeah. What they, what their needs are. Yeah. And don't take their abandoning fears personally. If there's nothing wrong with me that they want to leave, they're just scared. So last, last question. Tell, tell me about meditating at gunpoint. I mean, I've sort of done it, but you're the master. Tell me. All right. Why do that? Why the hell would you do that? The interesting thing about the sense of self is that it's the assumption that we already know what the experience is going to be. That is the sense of self. Knowledge of right and wrong. True for me, not true for me. I like broccoli. I don't like bell peppers. I mean, it, it, whatever my knowledge of right and wrong, which got us kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but that, that ability to actually have an experience that is not self-compatible, that is outside the realm of the sense of self. But you prime people for that experience to where they might expect this. You might expect that. You know, and I always say it, you can't, no matter how much you write, no matter how many videos you make, no matter how much you talk, there's no way you can get somebody to experience tasting bubblegum. But once you taste it, you'll never forget it. So that ability to actually create environments to where you can have these experiences, you know, they're flow states, true flow states, but it, it's, you don't have to be trying to kill yourself or jump out of a plane or it's, you can fall into that flow state and fall back out. You're always coming and going from flow. And so the best teaching tool I've ever found for this is a 300 Winchester Magnum, um, a really big, scary gun that scares our neurobiology because of this thing called recoil. And we want to brace against the future. We want to brace against this. And so that ability to actually experience that you're, you're scared of something that isn't happening yet. And then you create a process you know, a simple stepwise process that encourages presence. So we gently come back to the next step in the process, 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 and you're never pulling the trigger. You're just in the next step of the process of increasing tension slowly on the trigger while you're doing these other things. And at some point in that experience throughout a day or two or three, I do three-day retreats, you have an experience that can't be understood, yet you can create a process to get to f increase the likelihood that you'll fall into it. And when you start to set up your days that way, whether you're returning emails or talking to your wife or listening to your kids or 
any of these things of balance, you know, to where when I'm really present with my kids and I'm in that flow state and then I gently feel myself go back to work or emails or whatever, I can gently come back into really being present to them. And if you can do that to everything all the time, either you're Jesus Christ or you're a Zen master or something, and I'm not that, that's not the the point, but it's really knowing a process to actually optimize every aspect of my life. When you, when you say knowing a process, I think about it in that prefrontal cortex, but it seems like it's an experiential footprint that exists more primal than words. Exactly. Yeah. And it's both. So, you know, we have an inner world and we have an outer world and how many worlds are there? There's only one world. Or there are infinite worlds, but <laughs> we won't get into that. No, that that's the old, yeah. There, there's lots of things to speculate about, but I'm just an animal. And I'm, I'm really clear. I know why I'm on this planet. The only thing I truly know why I'm here is that my parents had sex. So other than that, it, it's being able to meet everything else with curiosity and giving up my knowledge of right and wrong, giving up all of that, but building a process that lets me fall into those flow states. Because if I'm just returning emails, so the other thing I love about driven people, we have a wackadoodle relationship with time. <laughs> we do because of our frontal lobes. We, we, we think we have all the time in the world and then we put things off until we're crazy. And then we think we're in flow. But that ability for me to actually have a relationship with time that is completely different and setting up a process to where I'm optimizing what I do with my time. It's all about behavior, how I think and how I feel and all those things are nice, but it, it's what I get done. What you actually do. Right. And so that very simply, you drop who you are and you start to identify with what you are and what I am is what I'm doing. What am I doing right now? And the only way to do that is to step into your human beingness. You have to be being and then doing. And then you'll do for a while, get burned out and lose your beingness. And then you have to gently come back into being and go into doing. So the being and doing. Dynamic, dynamic movement there. Yeah. And most farmer meditations do not work for us. They make us crazy. Never, if you suspect you're driven, never close your eyes in meditation again, ever. I do not understand this from you. I know I've heard you say it before. I've been in your classes leading meditation and I... Because what meditation means... That's like... Yeah. What meditation is and the way I teach it is it's reality checking. Does my central nervous system actually match what's happening around me? That's an impossible question to answer. The point is, is to ask the question. You feel like you can't hold your surroundings in your mind's eye? You can't hold your surroundings in your mind's eye. Right, the match between external and internal. You can't assess that with your eyes closed. Correct. Yeah, you you are lost in the inner world. And most of those meditation practices are based on transcendental type meditations or or Hindu-based meditations where you're trying to transcend reality and meet some, you know, Jacob's Ladder trying to climb up and become God. And that's narcissism. It's not, you know, we're not God. We're, We're an animal. And that ability to, though, to actually experience the truth of what it is to be here, then you're doing something, you know, to see, you know, Meister Eckhart and all the great philosophers to really see that 
I am here, like, holy crap, I am really here. When you have those experiences, it, you know, the inner world and the outer world, and you give up the lie of that, that there is just one world and I'm in it. it it's a profound change. It's a crack in the self. It's a, it's a Zen terms. You experience the footprints of the ox. You are first touching something that is, you know, very spiritual. And it's spirit, meaning that which we cannot see. And, you know, spiritual, you know, spiritual, it means that you're full of that which we cannot see, but you can experience. And you can't understand God, don't try. But you can set up systems to where you can experience more closeness. Yeah, and then you, it's remarkable how many emails you can do in that state. <laughs> But if you're doing it to to get you know rid of all these emails so I can go relax, it won't work. <laughs> and so it's a uh, yeah, it began you know it it really is. And the next book after Driven Women is about you know really turning psychology upside down. Spoken like a true driven psychologist. <laughs> there is no finish line. Um, <laughs> no, and there there is no there there. Yeah. But how do you really get here? And that that's what I teach. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. If people who are listening are are just curious about wrapping their mind more about what you're thinking about and working on, what's the best place for them to get in touch with you? Simple place. I've only got one website. It's Dr. Doug Brackman, B-R-A-C-K-M-A-N-N. Um, wrote a book. You can, it's, I think it's, yeah, it is free PDF on the, on the website. Give it a read. It's called Driven. Driven is the title. It's understanding and harnessing the genetic gifts shared by entrepreneurs, Navy SEALs, professional athletes, and maybe you. So it's really, it's most of this stuff. It's got way, like most first, first authors, it's got way too much information in it. It's way too long of a read. You'll get halfway through chapter one and go, let me get the audio book if you're driven. My brain hurts. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Well, thanks, Doug. And I, I feel like... This is a lot for people to sort of like think about and wrap their mind around and hopefully it'll sort of help people connect with their driven sense a little bit better or give it some language. Yeah, if, if you feel like there's really something wrong with you, this might explain it all. There's not, you're not broken. If you got that inner world secret that you think you might be flawed, you're not. So that, that's kind of my message to the world and ending global narcissism if I can. <laughs> Love it. Totally behind that mission. <laughs> that's man that's a that's a pretty tall ladder but you know one rung at a time but thank you sherry this has been awesome i had a blast thanks for listening we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast in the meantime feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast you can get information about working with me about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.